Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars through conferences, seminars, campus events, and this podcast. This episode of the Campus Exchange comes in the days following the unconscionable terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel and the Jewish people. As you'll hear in today's conversation between AEI scholar Kenneth M. Pollock with AEI Collegiate Network member Dylan Proshnicki from Georgetown University, our scholars are providing moral clarity and clear-eyed expertise during these dark days. I hope today's interview is helpful for you to process these rapidly unfolding events. To see the latest from Ken Pollock and all of AEI's foreign and defense policy scholars, you can bookmark our landing page on the Israel-Gaza conflict, as well as the Critical Threats Project, both of which we will link in the show notes. Finally, I want to note that this conversation was recorded on Monday, October 16th. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Dylan Prochnicki, and I'm a senior at Georgetown University studying math. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Kenneth Pollack. Dr. Pollack is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on Middle Eastern political military affairs, focusing in particular on Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf countries. Dr. Pollack teaches at the uh, at Georgetown Security Studies Program. Dr. Pollack is a graduate of Yale University and holds a doctorate from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dr. Pollack, before uh, joining AEI, served in the CIA and for the National Security Council. Dr. Pollock, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. All right, so I'll jump right into it. In your recent article on the uh, AE Ideas blog and in the National Interest, entitled, Does Israel Have Any Good Options in the Gaza War? Uh, you laid out three obvious military options Israel has. They are one, limited airstrikes and special ops incursions to surgically target Hamas and get hostages back. Uh, two, the first plus uh, incursions lasting in the hours to days, and three, the occupation of the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, the New York Times has recently reported that the IDF has uh, been ordered to capture Gaza City in the northern part of the Strip. So how far does that, coupled with Israeli warnings to evacuate northern Gaza, suggest that the Israelis intend to go in Gaza? Yeah, so I, I think in some ways this is still the $64 billion question. What does Israel actually intend to do militarily? And there, you know, I think that, as you're pointing out, all of the evidence that we have suggests that the Israelis are planning to do a major operation, my third option, which is a full-scale invasion of Gaza, perhaps only the northern part. My guess is it will eventually extend to the southern part as well to temporarily occupy it and then to go systematically through it, uh, certainly block by block, potentially house by house, looking for Israeli hostages, Hamas leadership, Hamas military assets, and really clean the place out. That said, we need to recognize a few things. First, uh, the Israelis started out with option one. That made a lot of sense, just doing airstrikes and special forces. That's more or less what they are doing now. Uh, they could go straight to the biggest option. They could take the intermediate option as a, an intermediate step. So they could next move toward you know large-scale raids with additional armor and infantry moving into Gaza for hours, conceivably days at a time, and then pulling back. Alternatively, as this operation unfolds, Israel might decide to shift gears. So they might start out big and then decide either 
they don't want to because it's too costly or that it's simply unnecessary to maintain their presence throughout all of Gaza and shift back toward one of the one of these other lesser options. You know, what we've seen from the Israeli military over the past 75 years is that this is a very flexible adaptable military, and they will constantly assess whether or not they are making progress, whether what they are doing is actually working for them. And if it isn't, they will change gears. And if it is, they might still change gears because they think that they're succeeding enough and don't need to keep doing what they were doing. So I don't think any of us should assume that the Israelis have got one plan, they're going to execute that plan, and that's all there is. that's a little bit more like how the U.S. military tends to do things, although we have more flexibility than that implies as well. But nonetheless, the Israeli military operates in a very different fashion. And while it does seem like they are planning to do the biggest option of all, understandably, uh, that we shouldn't just assume that that is set in stone or that it might shift over time. That's interesting. So the Israelis are going for a uh, perhaps urban warfare campaign in Gaza with the intent on occupation. And I guess then I'm curious that, um, you know, something in in the last 20 years of conflict uh, has shown that the strongest and most sophisticated uh, militaries can get bogged down uh, when in urban warfare situations. And so I'm curious to that end, uh, you know, what experience uh, the IDF has in urban warfare in recent time yeah, how would you assess that? Sure. So, and first point, um, urban warfare is always terrible. Um, as a military analyst, we talk about how urban warfare is a great leveler. So even poor armies can do very, very well in an urban environment because it is so difficult to operate in. And I think that there are certainly aspects of what's going on in Gaza that could very well bring to mind um, truly awful urban fights like the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. This is going to be a very difficult fight. It will be fought in three dimensions. Um, Doubtless there are going to be civilian casualties. There are going to be Israeli military casualties. Um, it It could be a very, very hard slog. But not all city fights are horrendous slogs. People forget this. Most cities fall and they fall very quickly. Even during World War II, even on the Eastern Front, the Germans uh, overran many Russian cities actually quite quickly. They took casualties. They tend to take more casualties fighting for cities than they did other types of terrain. But nonetheless, they took most of the Russian cities very, very quickly um, with a minimum loss of life. And there are actually some analogous points that are worth thinking about with regard to Gaza in particular, what made something like Stalingrad so horrific, what makes the for the worst urban fights is typically when the other side can constantly reinforce. Right? So this is what we saw at the Battle of Stalingrad was that no matter how many Russians the Germans killed, the Russians could always feed in more men, more men, more men, and also women as well who were also fighting in Stalingrad. But they could constantly feed in reinforcements. That's not going to be the case in Gaza. Uh, The only fighters in Gaza are already there. And when those fighters die, they are not going to get replaced. And so that should simply demonstrate that while the fighting is likely to be awful, it doesn't necessarily have to be as awful as something as Stalingrad. You asked about Israeli uh, experiences. They've had quite a bit. They've fought in Gaza before. They've mounted repeated campaigns in Gaza since 2008. 
They have fought in the West Bank constantly. You know, if you want to go back far enough, remember that they took the, the city of Jerusalem uh, in the Six-Day War. But again, even more important than that, they have been fighting in places like Nablus and Janine and other cities on the West Bank on an almost constant basis since certainly 1988, arguably even more. So the, the Israelis do have quite a bit of experience with urban warfare. They have a good sense of how it operates. And I think that we have to expect that they are going to try to employ all of those uh, lessons. But as I said, to begin with, no matter how good you are at urban warfare, urban warfare is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at what uh, other players in the region might be thinking, I'm curious, what do you think Iran is thinking about its options at this moment? I know you detail much of this in your foreign affairs piece, which everybody should read. But for the benefit of the audience and with the benefit of time since that piece ran, Can you describe what factors might lead Iran to escalate the conflict and how likely those factors are to arise? Sure. So first, I suspect that the Iranians think that they're winning right now. I think that the Iranians feel like Hamas, their ally, won a huge victory over Israel. It was shocking. Uh, it you know, made the Israelis look weak and vulnerable. It made Hamas seem like it was a very potent force. I think that the Iranians probably expect that the Israelis will mount a counteroffensive into Gaza. And I think that the Iranians believe that it is going to bog down into a kind of a, a horrific Stalingrad-like urban meat grinder, which I think, again, the Iranians think will be a great victory for them. Ultimately, I think that for the Iranians, this derailed any chance at Palestinian-Israeli peace, not that there was much going on there before this happened. Even more importantly, it has clearly derailed the rapprochement that has been going on between Israel and the Arab states. And I think that's also another big victory for the Iranians. In terms of escalation, I'm... If you can put it this way, I tend to be more sanguine about this uh, than most other folks. Um, Iran clearly was involved in the planning for this operation. Whether they knew about the timing or not is something different, but there's no question that they were deeply involved in helping Hamas put this all together, which means that had they wanted to participate, they could have, and they chose not to. Had they wanted Hezbollah to participate, they could have, and they chose not to. And let's recognize that Israel was at its most vulnerable. It was at its weakest on October 7th. If Iran had really wanted to simply maximize the damage to Israel, if Iran had wanted to fight Israel at the moment when Israel was going to be least prepared to fight Iran or fight Hezbollah, it was on October 7th. They would have joined the fight or they would have told Hezbollah to join the fight, pushed Hezbollah to join the fight, And it would have been like October 1973 all over again with Syria and Egypt mounting simultaneous surprise attacks on Israel. It would have been an order of magnitude worse for the Israelis. The fact that neither Iran nor Hezbollah did that I think is the clearest evidence that we have that they're not looking for a fight. They're not looking to get involved in this. Now, could they still? It's certainly possible. What Iran can do to Israel isn't all that meaningful. They've got a, a certain number, probably several hundreds of missiles that could reach Israel, but they knew full well that the Israelis can uh, punch back much, much harder against them in a whole variety of different ways. Um, I think that Iran would be very happy to fight to the last Palestinian. 
Now, the real question mark, though, is about Hezbollah and whether Iran would also be willing to fight to the last Lebanese. That's a little tougher for Iran. They value Hezbollah tremendously. Um, Hezbollah has greater capability against Israel, but let's recognize Hezbollah's capability against Israel is really the capability to fire, again, rockets and missiles, and they can fire far more at Israel than Iran can. Conceivably, Hezbollah could fire so many against Israel that it could overwhelm Israel's missile defenses. That's certainly meaningful, but even if Hezbollah does that, Israel will counterattack. And the damage that Israel will do to Hezbollah will be tremendous. And I don't think we should not forget, I don't think the Iranians have forgotten that after the 2006 Second Lebanon War, which everyone sees as a great political victory for Hezbollah, it was a military disaster for Hezbollah. And afterwards, Hassan Nasrallah famously said that if he knew what the Israelis were going to do during that war, he never would have started it to begin with. And so I think all of that suggests that the Iranians aren't necessarily looking to lose Hezbollah in this war, too. I think that, again, what Hamas has done is terrific. I think that the Iranians are looking forward to the Israeli counteroffensive, thinking that it's going to, again, bleed Israel in a horrible way and add to the sense that Hamas has won a big victory. But I think the Iranians, by and large, are going to sit on the sidelines. They'll certainly have Hezbollah do some stuff. We're already seeing that, if only so that Israel doesn't feel free to commit its full might against Israel. Uh, against Hamas. But I think that if Iran had its druthers, it would stay at this level. I mean, the great issue is, of course, that wars are inherently unpredictable. Things happen that people can't foresee. It is certainly possible that you could have escalation with Hezbollah coming in big, maybe even Iran. It's just that what I see so far, the incentives seem to be to run against that. Uh, you're, you're right that a lot of people have been discussing uh, Iran's role in this conflict, and they seem to have been um, operating uh, along a similar logic that you described in your foreign, poli uh, foreign policy piece in, in August uh, on Iran's new grand strategy, where you argued that uh, you know a, a decreasing uh, presence of the United States in the region and the increasing likelihood of a Saudi-Israeli uh, coalition would provoke Iranian aggression. And so I guess my question is, do you think that a lot of the initial assessments or even speculations, you might call them, of Iran's role in this conflict were based too heavily on, uh, you know, that particular logic than on empirical evidence of in Iranian hand? Yeah, you know, this is this is one of the problems with being a Middle East expert, Dylan, which is that um, whenever you're right, it means that something horrible has happened. Um, and I think that this is, uh, you know, emblematic of that. Um, and if you remember in that piece, what I specifically was talking about was how Iran was on the one hand trying to have this rapprochement with the Arab states while simultaneously growing more aggressive against both Israel and the United States as a way of driving a wedge. And I think that, yes, the Hamas attack is a perfect example of that in action. Um, and, you know, I, I think that unfortunately, after 20 years of waging war in the Middle East, you had a lot of Americans who desperately wanted to believe that the Middle East was just getting better. 
that they looked at this rapprochement between the Iranians and the Arab states and thought, ah, this is wonderful. This is the answer to our prayers. They're going to make up. That'll end the Arab-Israeli dispute. And they're going to ally, which means that they'll be stronger and better able to stand up to Iran and they won't need us, right? End the Arab-Israeli dispute, uh, a strong alliance against Iran. You don't need the United States. And you know, I think what we're seeing once again is that's not how the Middle East works. That's not the logic of the region, that America's disengagement from the region has emboldened the Iranians and their allies, uh, made them feel like they can use force to a much greater extent than they did in the past. And the fact that Israel and the Arab states were getting closer was frightening to them. Right. And they wanted to stop it. And the Hamas attack, I think, as I suggested earlier, right, plays to Iran's wishes in both of these uh, ways. Right. So it puts paid to the possibility of ending the Arab-Israeli dispute, at least for the near term. And I, I really hope that's not the case. I actually think one of the lessons we should take away from that is if you really want to defeat Iran, there needs to be an Arab-Israeli peace process. But then it also will separate the Israelis from the Arab states, right? And from my perspective, the role of the United States really ought to be to try to bring all of that together, not to step back and hope that it's going to happen all by itself. Mm. Um, I guess uh, in this situation, the, where you discuss the uh, derailment or, or stalling of at least uh, you know, Saudi-Israeli normalization, I'm curious uh, if, given the domestic political dynamics in Saudi Arabia, uh, do you think that the uh, the crown prince has enough power within those dynamics to push through normalization if he has it as a part of his uh, bigger picture for the country? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so my own time in the U.S. government, one of the lessons I took away is that it's often the case that a political leader will have the clout, will have the authority, will have the power to do something. But the calculation that he or she is going to make is whether it's worth spending that political clout to make it happen. Right. And there can be times when they definitely want something to happen, but they still may conclude. But you know what? It's not worth the amount of of political clout I'm going to need to expend on this. Um, and it may simply be a matter of, you know, now is not a good time to do this because it'll cost me too much. I'm hoping that in six months things will have calmed down and I can get the same result at less price. I suspect that's actually where Mohammed bin Salman is right now. I think that he still does want the rapprochement with Israel. I think that he absolutely does want this alliance with the Israelis against the Iranians. But I think that what has happened, the Hamas attack to some extent, Israel's entirely understandable and justifiable responses to it, right? These have nonetheless divided the region once again and probably inflamed public sentiment in Saudi Arabia. And I think for now, Mohammed bin Salman is simply trying to calculate, okay, is it worth it? for me to do so. And I will say that I think a big issue for him is probably the shadow of the future, right? That he's probably asking himself the question, kind of the first question you asked me, I don't know what the Israelis are going to do militarily. And if they go into Gaza in a very big way, you could have huge numbers of Palestinian civilians dying. 
And if that's the case, boy, that could really inflame Arab sentiment. And I might look really bad for having forged ahead with rapprochement with Israel under those circumstances. So I think from his perspective, the smartest thing he can do, and we're already seeing this from them, is just step back, right? Not necessarily say, I am not going to ever repair relations with Israel, but simply say, I'm going to step back. It's all on hold. I want to see how things develop. And then I think he's probably hoping that things will transpire in such a way that he will eventually, at some point, be able to get back to where he wants to get to, which is, as I said, a rapprochement with Israel, solidifying an alliance with Israel that is going to give him some greater security vis-a-vis Iran. I want to look back again at that uh, foreign policy piece on uh, Iran's new grand strategy. And there you write that Iran appears to have learned a new trick. They have uh, begun to soften their touch in the region, whereas uh, you also write, it remains to be seen if the United States can as well. We've been pursuing uh, the same strategy through the past three administrations, many would argue. Uh, So I'm curious, uh, after this set of tragedies, do you think the U.S. will rethink its attempts to exit the region? Oh, boy, I hope so. Uh, You know, this is where... Uh, that very famous line from The Godfather always crops up. And, you know, we hear it time and again in the Middle East, right? Every time I think I'm out, they drag me back in. Um, you know, we've seen this movie. We've seen it any number of times. And, you know, Godfather 3 was the you know, worst of the whole trilogy, right? So why should we be reenacting that one? Um, you know, the problem, I've seen this, I've been in Washington for 35 years, and every administration I served in and every administration that I watched all started out saying, okay, what can we do to minimize our involvement in the Middle East, right? What can we do to push the Middle East to the back burner, right? And typically, you've got people like me saying to them, warning them, if you try to do that, it's not going to work out. Um, The Middle East is going to come back to bite you, and it will bite you hard, as it has every single U.S. administration over the last 40 years. And you're going to wish that you had dealt with it up front, because in the case of the Middle East, an ounce of prevention is worth several pounds of cure. And it's the mistake we make over and over again. I will say that, you know, I was somewhat heartened that I think the Biden administration was already starting to understand that. They were starting to re-engage with the region. I felt that they had done some useful and important things. coming to Saudi Arabia's defense last November when we had the intelligence threats against them, I felt were important signing this new peace agreement or sorry, security agreement with Bahrain, which happened a couple of weeks ago. I thought that was important too. Those were important steps that demonstrated a willingness to at least consider re-engaging, trying to re-engage. But I hope that this is going to demonstrate that, yeah, at the end of the day, Much as we may hate the Middle East, much as we may tire of it, much as we may wish that it would just go away, ignoring a problem is not a good solution to it. And it's certainly not a solution to the problems of the Middle East, which unfortunately are too big, too intractable, and too important to America's own vital interests to think that we can just ignore them. Okay, as as I'm going to be asking my penultimate question, I guess I'll throw you a softball. Uh, you know, what would you recommend to Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, and President Biden as a 
uh, new steps towards a, a better strategy for dealing with the region. Wow, and you want this answer in like 30 seconds, right, Dylan? Um, you can have 120. <laughs> thank you for that. So obviously it's a very big deal. And look, we have to deal with the first, the, the, the first problem first. And you know, here, the, the overall part, point is that it's got to be a, an approach that employs both carrots and sticks, right? Both soft power and hard power, right? And hard power meaning both economic and military tools. In the immediate circumstances, we do need to, to stand by Israel. Israel needs to destroy Hamas. That is important to Israel's security. It is important to our interests in the region in terms of demonstrating to Iran and its allies that these kinds of operations are not going to benefit them in the long run and reassure our allies that we are going to have their back and we're going to do what is necessary to make them feel secure. And then that, to me, is in some ways a microcosm of the larger reengagement for the United States in the region. Right? We do need to have our allies back. We need to demonstrate to them that when they face significant security threats from Iran and its allies, but conceivably from other quarters as well, we absolutely are going to be there to defend them. Uh, you know, what President Trump did in 2019, walking away from the Saudis and Emiratis when they were under attack, direct military attack by the Iranians, was disastrous. It was disastrous for them. It was disastrous for us. But one of the other things that I hope that we will be doing, and again, I think this is where the Biden administration would like to put more of its energy, and I think it does start with this new crisis between Hamas and Israel, is that as we are glad to stand by Israel, we are determined to stand by Israel and it, and help it destroy Hamas, <laughs> Hamas, excuse me, we also have to recognize that there is a bigger problem, and that problem is the problem between Israel and the Palestinians. And while we may, you know, I think rightly condemn the Palestinians for encouraging and, and, you know, reveling in what Hamas has done, I mean, these despicable actions by Hamas, we still have to recognize their misery. And we have to recognize that their misery is part, in fact, it's what Hamas preys upon, what Hamas uses. And so part of this has to be an end state whereby, whereby me, Gaza comes out of this better than it was beforehand where Gaza is actually a peaceful place, where economic progress is taking place with a new government that rejects Hamas and is willing to make peace with Israel. Because at the end of the day, that's the only way that we're going to get at the underlying problems here. And once again, that needs to be a roadmap for the rest of the region, a willingness to use our hard power to push back hard on Iran and its allies and the other forces of instability in the region, the other groups and countries out there who are ready to use violence to overturn the status quo. But then we have to be far more engaged in trying to help our allies and any country that's willing to find peaceful ways of solving their problems as well. Well, having given you that softball, I'm going to have to hit you hard with this final question, which we asked to all of our guests which is, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? Sure. So this is a hell of a question because there's so much that I wish I knew when I was in college. But I'll answer it, I guess, in this way, which is that 
I actually do believe in, in doing what you love. Um, I've done something that I found fascinating every single day of my life. Um, the fact that I was able, at least for part of my time, and I'd like to believe for all of my time down here, I did it in service of my country, made it even better. Um, and that's a great thing. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Right? People seem to tell you that you know if you do something that you love, you'll love every, you'll love working every day. Uh, I can guarantee that that's not the case. Uh, that even when you're doing something you you love, there's just a ton of you know awful stuff that you're going to have to put up with. It's just that that's what life is all about, right? You're going to have awful stuff in any work you choose to go into. But at least if you go into something that you find interesting, you know, there's some stuff in there that you enjoy. And at the end of the day, when you kind of sit back, you kind of feel like, yeah, that was all worth it. Uh, all the terrible stuff that I needed to do, you know, worked out in the end for me because it was ultimately in the pursuit of something that I found interesting and worthwhile and rewarding. Thank you, Dr. Pollock, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time. Thank you.